0: If you came here looking for the Jeff Foxworthy Bible Challenge game show, you are absolutely in the right place, and we'll get to the wacky trivia and cash prizes in a moment. But in the meantime, welcome to Book. Hello, and this is Book, a Bible podcast for everybody. I'm Josh Wake. This is the show where we look at the actual content of the Bible through the lenses of history and literature. And then I talk about it and stuff. We move now to the long and sordid history of Israel's national period, the time of the kings. The primary literature from this period are two scrolls, kings and chronicles, which recount the days and deeds of Israel's rulers. They are each superficially divided into two parts, but they constitute complete works and they both cover the same period of history. Now this could easily devolve into the most boring podcast ever if we simply listed all the kings of Israel and their accomplishments, or failures as the case may be. We're more interested in the historical context of these books than the historical content, and we're primarily concerned with the literary presentation. Why is this history collected and recounted in this way? Who is collecting and recounting it? What is the argument they are making? What did they leave in and what did they leave out? What's the argument they're making? Now, we don't often think about the Bible disagreeing with itself, unless we're accusing it of misinformation or contradiction, but by allowing it to be heard for what it is, a collection of ancient human literary witnesses to history and culture, we find ourselves eavesdropping on some very interesting conversations indeed. Kings and Chronicles, often regarded as little more than bloated and boring ancient record books. Are actually a terrific example of a biblical disagreement. They provide a rare opportunity to look back at a single period of ancient history from two very different viewpoints. This is why we're going to look at Kings and Chronicles together in a compare and contrast type deal. Both scrolls narrate the time from the death of David until the exile, the next major cataclysm in biblical history, and we'll have much more to say about that anon. There's a great deal of material that appears in both scrolls, often in the same or similar form, however. It's the differences and omissions which put the two books at odds. Kings and Chronicles are using the same data to tell two different stories. Both are concerned with the political and religious performance of the kings, but they employ different criteria and arrive at different conclusions. And when Assyria and Babylon come along and pull the rug out, They both face some harsh new realities with their own spin. We'll take a brief tour of each scroll, and then we'll compare and contrast the two. The first half of Kings is primarily concerned with the reign of David's son Solomon. We could do a whole podcast about Solomon, but in the interest of time and big picture, we'll give him the old greatest hits treatment. The truth is, the portrayal of Solomon in 1 Kings gives us the rubric by which all of Israel's subsequent kings will be judged. In that vein, here are the major events in the account of Solomon and their significance to the overall literary agenda. Solomon has to fight his older brother Adonijah for aging King David's throne, and the prophet Nathan and Solomon's mother Bathsheba are instrumental in making sure he gets it. David dies, and Solomon's first week as king is a busy one, what with the three assassinations. He kills three men, his brother Adonijah, and two of his father's enemies, Joab and Shimei. Solomon makes a marriage treaty with Egypt's pharaoh. This is the last sort of treaty you'd expect an Israelite king to make, given the awkward history between these two nations. Solomon makes sacrifices to God at a High place. Now, that sounds properly religious, but it's actually a negative thing in a nationalistic text like King's. High places are threshing floors, like the one we visited in Ruth, which have been set up as local places of worship over against the official center of worship, the tabernacle in Jerusalem. Now, all of these are surely meant to be red flags, but there are some good things, too. Solomon is gifted by God with great wisdom, and he builds God a magnificent temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The temple, like the tabernacle tent which prefigured it, is adorned with creation imagery and features several concentric courts, which surround a holy central zone where the Ark of the Covenant, and thus God himself, dwells. In chapter 9, Solomon has his own covenant re-establishing encounter with God, who restates the promise and warning he gave to David, Keep the covenant law, and I will establish your throne forever. Forsake it, and it's all over. The rest of the scroll is the sad enactment of this curse. Solomon amasses enormous wealth and an enormous army with tens of thousands of soldiers, horses, and chariots. Meanwhile, he employs slave labor to build himself an elaborate palace. Essentially, Solomon turns into Pharaoh, which is very undued for a king of Israel. Eventually, Solomon completely abandons the covenant and becomes an international playboy, marrying a thousand foreign women who introduce him to a thousand foreign gods. Many enemies, foreign and domestic, raise up against Solomon, per God's warning to David that an unfaithful son would be, quote, punished by the rod of men. Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam takes the throne, however, A challenger named Jeroboam takes control of the northern territory, leading to a split in the kingdom and a new civil war between the north, now called Israel, and the south, now called Judah. Solomon's reign marked a sea change for the nation of Israel. David stumbled, but Solomon fell, and so did unified Israel. After Solomon, kings didn't receive personalized covenant promises from the mouth of God anymore. They faced off with angry prophets who condemned them. The rest of kings is a list of these kings and the prophets who annoyed them. Reading these chapters is a bit repetitive and depressing, and you have to keep track of two lines of kings, northern Israelites and southern Judahites. I've made a PDF chart of all the kings that I'll attach to the post for this podcast at book.joshua.com. Now here's an abbreviated rundown of the list of kings. Down south, Rehoboam gathers his armies to march northward and recover the northern kingdom, but a prophet named Shemaiah tells him not to go. Meanwhile, in the north, Jeroboam sets up an ersatz temple and several golden calves for people to worship, a sort of Exodus retro blasphemy fad. An unnamed prophet from Judah confronts Jeroboam with a warning from God to cut the crap. An unnamed prophet from the north makes a desperate attempt to bribe the first prophet into changing his story and is swiftly killed by a lion. Still in the north, a prophet named Ahijah tells Jeroboam that his days are numbered, which becomes quite poignant when the king dies. Meanwhile, in the south, Rehoboam builds more high places, leading the people deeper into idolatry and sin. And then Shishak, king of Egypt, invades Jerusalem and steals the treasure. Rehoboam dies. A Judahite named Abijam becomes king of the southern kingdom, but he only gets one paragraph before he dies. After Abijam comes the rule of Asa, one of the few good kings, which, according to the text, means, quote, he walked in the ways of his predecessor David. Meanwhile, in the north, Jeroboam is succeeded by his son Nadab, who was very naughty indeed, but it didn't matter because he was almost immediately murdered and supplanted by a rival named Baasha. A prophet named Jehu predicts the fall of Baasha, which then happens. He is succeeded by the similarly short and naughty reigns of Elah, Zimri, and Omri. Now Omri's son Ahab takes the northern throne, and he is a particularly wicked ruler, setting up altars to the Canaanite god Baal and the goddess Asherah. A prophet named Elijah comes forth to oppose King Ahab, and to call him to change his ways or face the consequences. Elijah gets a lot of biblical screen time in which he brings a widow's son back from the brink of death and faces off against 450 prophets of Baal. Spoiler, he wins. Ahab's wicked and manipulative wife Jezebel declares war on Elijah who must flee for his life. On his journey, he has a personal encounter with God, something the kings of Israel and Judah alike are denied in this period, God tells him to seek out another prophet named Elisha who will become his sidekick. For a short time, Ahab chooses to listen to the prophets instead of his wife, and the northern kingdom is briefly peaceful and prosperous. Eventually, however, Ahab's treachery catches up with him and he's killed on the battlefield. Meanwhile, in the south, Asa's son Jehoshaphat becomes king of Judah. He's an okay guy and he makes peace with Israel, but it doesn't last long. Up in the north, Ahab's son Ahaziah rules over Israel, and he's a chip off the old block. Soon, a dead chip off the old dead block. Around this time, Elisha is promoted to Israel's chief prophet when Elijah is taken up into the sky by chariots made of fire. A good day for everyone involved. After Ahaziah's death, another son of Ahab named Joram assumes the throne of Israel. At this point, Elisha has his own series of adventures as he performs miraculous signs and wonders in and around the kingdom of Israel. Meanwhile, in the south, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, reigns in Judah and ends the brief streak of royal righteousness. The text says he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, which is about the worst insult this book has to offer. He quickly dies, as does the next king, his son Ahaziah, not to be confused with Israel's king Ahaziah. And back up north, Elisha anoints a young man named Jehu who cleans house in the kingdom of Israel by hunting down all of Ahab's descendants, including Jezebel, and wiping out the remaining prophets of Baal, which is fine and good, except that he rebuilds those golden calves and leads Israel astray, etc. until he dies. Meanwhile, in the south, Judah is briefly ruled over by its first and only queen as Athaliah, the mother of the recently dead Ahaziah, seizes power. She attempts to secure her claim by wiping out the rest of the royal family, her own family, but a son of Ahaziah named Joash manages to survive and becomes king when his grandmother is killed. Awkward Passover that year. Joash makes some repairs to the temple, but he accomplishes little else. He's succeeded by his son, Amaziah, who is succeeded by his son, Jotham. Back in the north, Jehu's son Jehoahaz becomes king of Israel, as does his son, Joash, not to be confused with Judah's king, Joash. Speak of the devil, back down south, Amaziah, the son of Judah's king, Joash, becomes king. He's an okay but forgettable monarch, as is his son, Azariah, who inherits his throne. He is sometimes referred to as Uzziah because this isn't convoluted enough. In Israel, in the north, Jeroboam too takes the throne and his reign is characterized by great naughtiness. The same can be said for his son Zechariah, the next king, and for that matter, for the next five kings of Israel, Shalom, Menahem, Pekaniah, Pekah, and hoshea All naughty, all the time. Hang in there, we're coming to the home stretch. Meanwhile, in Judah, a notoriously wicked king named Ahaz comes to power, and some cataclysmic changes are about to devastate the twin kingdoms of Israel. Around this time, the nation of Assyria, to Israel's north, becomes one of the ancient world's first superpowers, an empire with a view to domination over the whole Near Eastern world. Israel and Judah, while often bullied by Assyria, don't consider invasion a real possibility or concern. Judah's King Ahaz is more worried about King Pekah of Israel and his allies, and so he makes a cowardly deal with Assyria's king, bribing him with Jerusalem's gold for protection and converting the temple into an Assyrian holy site. All of this incurs condemnation from a prophet named Isaiah, who will get his own episode of this podcast some other day. Not long after. Around 740 BCE, Israel's own tribute to Assyria is rejected, and the northern kingdom is utterly destroyed by that empire's armies, and thousands of Israelites are killed or dragged off into exile. That's it. No more kings in Israel. For practical purposes, no more Israel. Meanwhile, back in Judah, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, is king. He's a good king by the standard of the prophets, and while he fears the Assyrians, he listens to the prophet Isaiah. And as a result, Assyria is unable to capture Jerusalem, and the empire begins to crumble from within. Now, the fall of Assyria is good news indeed, but the void left by one empire is quickly filled by another. Babylon rises to power, and within Hezekiah's lifetime, they become a real nuisance. After Hezekiah, Judah is ruled by the remarkably idolatrous Manasseh and his similar son Ammon. After Manasseh and Ammon comes Josiah, a good king in the mold of David who enacts many reforms which prove to be too little too late. After Josiah's death, Judah is briefly ruled by his son Jehoahaz, who is swiftly kidnapped by Egypt's Pharaoh, who replaces him with another son of Josiah named Eliakim, who is Egypt's stooge. Pharaoh changes his name to Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim eventually becomes a stooge of Babylon's King Nebuchadnezzar, as does his son Jehoiachin. Now we come to the end, the end of Judah and the end of the kings. During the reign of Jehoiachin, around 597 BCE, the armies of Babylon march on Jerusalem and conquer it. Unlike Assyria, which doled out fire and destruction, Babylon has a smarter plan. They carry away Judah's best and brightest to Babylon, leaving the general population to remain in the homeland under the rule of a puppet king named Zedekiah. That is the data. Those are the kings of Israel and Judah, and those are the events which tragically and suddenly ended the national period and the monarchy. Nothing can be the same after this. Now, kings doesn't end with a post-game analysis or some explicit bit of commentary on what we've just read, but a few things are apparent from the presentation. For one thing, there really are no good kings, just kings who were more or less wicked than the others. After Solomon, God wouldn't even speak directly to the monarchs. He spoke through the prophets, the only real good guys in these accounts. And we can conclude with some certainty that the author or editors of Kings, most likely the prophets themselves, viewed the fall of Israel and the Babylonian exile as the direct result of the sinful activity of the Kings. Kings is much more than a simple history book. It's a scathing expose of the government culprits responsible for plunging Israel into apostasy and exile, namely the kings themselves, who, despite their anointing to be the representative of the people, chose to ignore the prophets and seek their own agenda. Next, and finally, we turn to Chronicles. Now, don't fear. We don't need to do a play by play rundown of the entire book of Chronicles, since it's basically a truncated presentation of the same material we just saw in Kings. This has led many to disregard or dismiss Chronicles as a repetitive and unnecessary book. However, it's what's missing from Chronicles that gives it its unique value. Here's a brief comparison. Chronicles is divided into two parts just like Kings, but the first part consists mostly of genealogies, lists, and officers, and a long retelling of David's reign. It's worth a read, particularly for the expanded view it provides of David, But for the sake of time and trajectory, we're going to focus on the second part, which covers the same material as both halves of kings, from Solomon to the exile. The account of King Solomon in Chronicles gives us our first inkling of the book's distinct point of view. All the same elements are here, Solomon's wisdom, his wealth, the building of the temple. What's missing is anything bad or unflattering. According to Chronicles, Solomon was a great and prosperous king, and then he died. Things like assassinations, the thousand foreign wives, and slave labor are glossed over or omitted completely. In this account, Solomon's reign was an extension of the glorious reign of David, and God's favor shone on both kings equally. Then after Solomon's death, the kingdom split during the reign of Rehoboam is described as Israel's rebellion. And the Northern Kingdom is never recognized as a legitimate entity. In fact, and this is perhaps the major distinction of Chronicles versus Kings, the kings of Israel are not listed alongside the kings of Judah. They're only referenced occasionally as foils and nuisances to the true Judahite kings. That tells us one thing almost for certain. Chronicles is a product of Judah, of the house of David. The rest of Chronicles is a list of the kings of Judah, the same southern rulers we met in kings, but you'd hardly know it from the way they're portrayed here. The apostasy of Judah's kings is not whitewashed, but it is significantly played down, and more attention is given to how well these kings staved off the threat of the northern rebels. And conspicuously absent from this material is the steady stream of prophets who challenged and confronted these kings so boldly in the scroll of kings. To the royally sympathetic authors of Chronicles, the prophets are barely on the radar. They just pop up here and there to deliver a message or oversee an event, and they certainly don't get their own biographies and adventure stories like Elijah and Elisha did in Kings. Also, while the stories of apostasy and failure are muted and truncated in Chronicles, the few reforms of kings like Hezekiah and Josiah are expanded and celebrated. The end of Chronicles is the Babylonian capture of Judah, the fall of Israel to Assyria barely being mentioned. These verses from 2 Chronicles chapter 36 explore the reasons for the defeat, starting in verse 14. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. The sense here is that all the people of Judah were equally guilty of the sin which led to the exile. The kings may have played their part, but it was ultimately the people, the citizens, officials, and priests, who ignored God's message and incurred his wrath. The blame is evenly spread about. You get the feeling reading Chronicles that you're reading the official government version of what went down. It's like a White House briefing on a presidential scandal. The central facts cannot be avoided, but the spin is heavy. And here's the bottom line of our analysis. Kings appears to have been written or compiled by Israel's prophets, while chronicles appears to have been put together by the kings themselves, or their descendants or sympathizers. In our last couple of podcasts, we examined the fascinating relationship between the prophets and kings in the ancient biblical world. We observed that prophets existed primarily in this period to function as a foil for kings, challenging their power and keeping them in check. Well, that dynamic is on full display in Kings while it is suspiciously absent or toned down in Chronicles. Kings is a log of failures and punishments, wicked kings ignoring the warnings of prophets and plunging Israel into apostasy and an almost inevitable exile. Chronicles is about the great kings of Israel who did their best to keep an unruly and ungrateful nation in order until things just got out of hand. The Assyrian and Babylonian exiles represented a fatal disruption of Israel's national life. And even worse, they shattered the covenant which had defined Israel's very identity. Remember what we said about the covenant law. It was specifically designed for this people living in this land. When the people are scattered and the land is on fire, what hope is there for the covenant? What we have in these two books are two desperate attempts to deal with this horrific new reality. The prophets were like young, idealistic hippies. If the old guys in charge of Israel had done what was right, this would never have happened. And you know what? The Torah scroll called Deuteronomy, a literary influence on the text of kings, supports that view strongly. On the other hand, we have the Chronicles, which are content to spread the blame around and protect the reputations of Judah's kings. Once again, we discover that if we allow the Bible to be a living human witness to history rather than some relic or magic instruction book, we will encounter nothing less than a living and breathing testimony to the experiences of ancient people who want nothing more than to tell their side of some pretty remarkable stories. And for Israel, this is just the beginning of a remarkable new story, the story of if and how they might survive violent deportation and captivity in foreign pagan lands. From here on, the literature takes some outrageous turns, and I hope you'll continue to join me. This has been Book, a Bible podcast for everybody, and I've been Josh Way. If you enjoyed this podcast, I urge you to share, blog, like, and tweet it to your online friends and family. If you have any comments, questions, or constructive feedback, you can email me at book at joshway.com. You can also leave me a voicemail at 801-760-3013, and I'll try to answer it right here on the podcast. Read the book blog and find more content at book.joshway.com. That's going to do it for me, Bible pals. I will catch you next time.